Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise for the call to worship. Psalm 105, verses 1 through 3. I'll give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him, sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders, glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Let us do so now by remaining standing and singing together hymn 119. together. Dear Lord, again, we are grateful for the hour of worship and for the Sabbath day. We acknowledge to you that as the Sabbath was a gift to Adam, so it was a gift to humanity in general, not something which you established with Moses, a great error. Uh, the church has, has often uh, fallen under this idea that uh, the, the Sabbath is connected only with the old covenant. Not so. It is your gift to all mankind uh, it is your ordinance, your blessing, your desire, and indeed your commandment. And Father, uh, if ever there was a time in all the world, or at least in all of our lives, when we needed Sabbath, it is now. We need the rest and the blessing and the, the riches of grace offered to us there. 
We need you to refresh and to comfort our souls. We need you, frankly, O oh Lord, to, to wash away the stain of sin and of the, of the world. We're, we're so worldly, God. Uh, we are so worldly that it is almost impossible for our consciences not to condemn us and to give us an awful sense that we are unfit to worship you and that we are unfit to go on in the Christian life. Uh, thank God that you, you have provided a remedy for that as well, which we will consider in the sermon. But, Father... Uh, it is difficult. Uh, these are these are strange days in which we're living. Uh, we 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 just want to keep keep on going. We want to find a place for ourselves in this place in this church, morning and evening on the Sabbath day. We 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 wish to again express to you our commitment and our desire to place worship at the center of our lives at the beginning of our weeks. To say to you, O oh God, that for whatever for whatever else we might find in the world in the coming week. We feel that in worship we find the resources and the strength and the grace to face them. But Lord, uh, suppose that you should take this gift away from us. Where would we be? We would be those uh, so utterly weary and devoid of the spirit and so worldly that we could hardly profess our faith or hardly have a single thought of heaven. Dear God, we ask you that you would give us a true heavenly mindedness, that we would recognize that the greatest desire of the Christian as the Holy Spirit rules now his heart, is for the kingdom of God, and that we would be able to taste and to see your goodness in that kingdom. And as, that, as we hunger and desire and thirst and cry out for the righteousness of that kingdom, and especially for its great king, who is Jesus Christ, that we might experience his powerful reign. We look to you, Lord Jesus, as you reign in heaven. We, we can barely see you there through, through a glass dimly, but we know that you are there and by faith, uh, we are able to make it certain to our souls. Uh, we really need not doubt or be in any any uncertainty about it. Uh, but we do need your grace and your strength and your comfort to be ministered to the church. We, we find these things through things which are outwardly weak and contemptible through the preaching, through the sacraments, even through our brother and our singing. But all of these things are great, uh, great resources. And in them we find great refreshment. But more and more we ask, O oh God, in the secret, imperceptible way that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know that we will never see heaven on this earth so long as you have not returned, Lord Jesus. We know that we will still contend with suffering and trials. Uh, we will deal with uh, the rise and fall of nations. We will deal with all kinds of, of tumult in the churches. But we are assured that you are the author and the ruler of history, just as you are the author and the ruler of our own hearts and our own salvation. And God, as we consider you and look to you in your great sovereignty and the unfolding of your own plan, it is simply our prayer that you would make the church, which is to say this church and all of the Christians therein, more and more conscious of the fact that your kingdom is indeed coming, that it, it has broken into history through the coming of Jesus Christ. And that as he is now enthroned in heaven on high, he is beginning to reign. Yes, secretly, and we with him, but one day open for all to see. But to say secret is not to say devoid of life, devoid of power. There is a spiritual energy which is unfolding and which is expanding into all the world and has reached even us in this place. And which has given us a new desire not to go along with the course of this world, but to come into this place and to worship you when the worship on the Sabbath day of God has fallen out of favor more so than perhaps ever in the history of the world. 
at least in this country. A land which once held the Sabbath dear. It holds it dear no more. Not even in the Christian church do we find such things. And there's so little desire to worship you now. But the strangest thing of all, O Lord, is that we find that we wish to do so. And that the power of the kingdom of God has intruded into our hearts as a secret spiritual principle of life and of righteousness. And we pray, O God, that that principle would would continue to work itself out in our lives. That it would be advancing all the time. It would be advancing uh, in, 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 in holiness in our lives. That it would be advancing through the parents down to their children. That it would be advancing out into the world as our light is shining brightly as salt and light. God, the truth is, we'll never know how precious and how valuable our place in the world was until the last day. We will be surprised to discover how much good we did. We'll say, Lord, when did we ever do these things? And yet the amazing thing we'll discover is how much use you had for us in this world. The believer is so precious to you, even if we are not precious to ourselves. So precious, Lord Jesus, that you even laid down your own life and shed your precious blood that we might commune and have fellowship with you as disciples and even as friends. Oh, God, might we learn to cherish our own place, not with a sense of pride, but with an overwhelming sense of gratitude, amazed at the grace which is at work in our lives, amazed almost in a sense to look outside of our lives inwardly and to recognize grace is indeed advancing. And we are we are better off than when we began. And salvation is advancing in our souls. And we are far nearer to the day of grace, which is to say the day of salvation than we were when we began Lord Jesus, we look for your appearing with great anticipation. We long to see your rule outwardly and visibly and every knee bowing to you. But until that day should come, we as a small gathering of believers confess to you, you are our king, you are our Lord, you are our savior, and you are our great high priest. Let us hold fast our confession by your priesthood. Let us draw near to God and the throne of grace through your priesthood. And may we go on with perseverance by your priestly, gracious, sympathetic help. But then as we close our prayer, we remember those words you taught us to say. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. As we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, the glory forever. Amen. That was a scripture reading. It's a little bit of a lengthy one. I want to look at Leviticus chapter 16. And I want you to notice all of the intricate detail concerning the Day of Atonement and, and the, the priestly entrance into the tabernacle, or, or the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, the sacrifices that were to be offered there, the vestments they were to wear, the anointing, so much detail, which is just briefly alluded to in a few verses in Hebrews chapter 9, but this is the sort of stuff that stands behind it, and eventually, Lord willing, in the evening... Uh, sermons we will consider the book of Leviticus once we uh, complete the book of Exodus. Uh, Chapter 16 then. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron 
when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, or he will die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen undergarment shall be next to his body. And he shall be girded with a linen sash and attired with a linen turban. These are holy garments. They shall bathe his body in water and put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Then Aaron shall offer the bull for for the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, descended into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself and make atonement for himself and for his household. And he shall slaughter slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. He shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. He shall put the incense of the fire on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony. Otherwise, he will die. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side and also in front of the mercy seat. He shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil to do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of the transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And shall take some of the blood of the bull and of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all on all sides with the finger. He shall sprinkle some of the blood of it seven times and cleanse it and from the impurities of the sons of Israel consecrated. When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body with water in a holy place and put on his clothes and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. Then he shall offer up 
and smoke the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The one who is who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterward, he shall come into the camp. But the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be taken outside the camp and they shall burn their hides, their flesh and their refuse in the fire. Then the one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterward, he shall come into the camp. This shall be a permanent statute for you in the seventh month on the 10th day of the month. You shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. So the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. He shall thus put on linen garments, the holy garments, and make atonement for the holy sanctuary. And he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall also make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year. And just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did. Now, in response to God's word, let us stand together and sing the doxology. Turn with me to Psalter Selection 35 on page 633 of your hymnal. And read along with me in the bold. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. The mountains shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy and shall break in pieces the oppressor. He shall, uh, they shall fear thee. As long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations, he shall come down like rain upon the mown grass as showers that water the earth. In his days shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all the kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he shall deliver the needy when he crieth. The poor also 
and him that hath no helper. He shall spare the poor and needy and shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence and precious shall their blood be in his sight. And he shall live and to him shall be given of the gold of Sheba. Prayer also shall be made for him continually and daily shall he be praised. There shall be an handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountains. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon and they of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And let us stand together and sing praise to our God, hymn number 550.
Please be seated. Turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 9. What is a very rich uh, and full description of the priestly work of Jesus Christ, chapters 9 and 10. So we've already seen, uh, but uh, we will see in even greater measure, especially his priestly work on the cross. So Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies. Having a golden altar of incense... And the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded in the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle because, or excuse me, performing the divine worship But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful indeed for the work of our Savior as it is set forth in the book of Hebrews. We find a rich and an edifying discussion, uh, an inspired discussion, and we find medicine for our souls, especially our guilty consciences. Please give us uh, a, a sense of the perfection and the finality of his work as we go forward in this. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we looked at the work of Christ as a priest in relation to the covenant. The the covenant in chapter 8 there is more or less introduced. It is spoken of in chapter 7, verse 22. Jesus has become the surety of a better covenant. But the idea of the covenant becomes uh, a real focus in chapter 8. It continues into chapter 9 as well. Uh, And and so let me just say uh, a few things here at the outset about the covenant once again. The idea of the covenant is perhaps more important than you realize. You remember... Uh, as, as I said in the sermon last time, quoting Hugh Martin, that uh, the preaching uh, of the former days, he said, was marked by the large place assigned to the covenant. And by this, he said, the, the, the earnest hearer acquired large views of the truth. And he was well established in the truth. And by the truth, he was well grounded in his faith. 
Edifying preaching, in essence, he was saying, comes by preaching the covenant. I wonder if we assign a large enough place to the covenant in our church and in our faith and even in my preaching. What we ought to realize from the book of Hebrews, but from the whole of the Bible, is how central the idea of the covenant is to the whole idea of salvation. That without the covenant, there would be no access to God. For it is through the covenant that God grants a sinner access. And it is in terms of the covenant that our status before God is established and depends This is something that our confession states very well in its chapter on the covenant. I think it's chapter seven. It says this. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward. But by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. And so a covenant, very simply, is an arrangement where God makes himself available to us as our blessedness and reward. He opens up access to himself by which we are able to dwell in his presence upon certain conditions. And where those conditions are met, uh, so access is granted. Now for Adam... The covenant which he was under is what we call the covenant of works in the garden. And his continued enjoyment uh, of the garden and of the presence of God walking with God in the garden depended upon his obedience to God's command in the garden. God said you may eat of all the trees of the garden, but on the day you eat of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Those are the conditions of the covenant. Adam, I want you To follow this one simple rule. And you will forever know me as your blessedness and reward. And you will forever dwell in the sanctuary. But when he broke that covenant. What he lost was his continued enjoyment with God. As well as his access to the garden. Which again we ought to understand as the sanctuary or the holy place. The place where God especially dwelt and resided And the place where man was able to specially commune with God. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. They were cast out of his presence. And they were unable to re-enter. And so now, uh, through the broken covenant, man uh, no longer enjoyed closeness to God, but a distance. That is what sin introduced into this situation. And so following this... God instituted a new covenant, what we call the covenant of grace with Eve and her seed. But most especially with Abraham, as we find in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. What we uh, discover in that covenant that God establishes is that the conditions which must be met for man to enjoy God as his blessedness and reward. And for man to re-enter into the sanctuary, which is the place of God's special presence as represented in the garden, these were conditions that God would meet for man. Because man now as a sinner could not meet them for himself. Thus it is called not a covenant of works, since Adam was perfectly able to fulfill that covenant in his own strength, though he didn't. But a covenant of grace, which indicates that again, all the conditions God must fulfill for us. Here's the interesting point to consider 
as we are made aware of the covenantal structures of the Bible and of history. Again, as our confession points out, though I won't read it here, and you have to understand this to make sense of the book of Hebrews, this covenant came in two dispensations. The covenant of grace made with Abraham was administered first through the law as mediated through Moses, what we call commonly the old covenant, which you have uh, in the book of Exodus to the coming of Christ is commonly called the old covenant. That is the first administration of the covenant of grace. But then the second administration of grace is what we call the gospel as administered through Jesus Christ as the mediator, we just read, of a better covenant and a better ministry with better promises. And so again, there are two administrations of the covenant of grace, which are commonly called the old and the new covenants. I realize that's a little bit confusing, but it is in fact uh, how it is presented to us in scripture. Two uh, administrations of the one covenant of grace, which God established with Abraham. That is the contrast that we are presently considering. The old covenant and the new covenant. The one is ministered by Moses as its mediator. The other is ministered by Christ as its mediator. And again, what we are considering as a covenant or in terms of the covenant is how God related to man in each dispensation and how freely man was able to enter into the presence of God. What we will discover is in one, not so much in the other, very much. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 10 has to do with the old. It is a description of that old covenant or that old administration. It is a deeper look into the other side of the contrast. What the old covenant consisted of, what it represented, what it accomplished, and its precise point of termination. Until a time of reformation, he says at the end of verse 10. And I want to consider the old covenant under three headings. The first which we find in verses 1 through 7, which is not my great interest, and so we'll deal with this very briefly. Verses 8 through 10 are the real focus here. Verses 1 through 7, details about the tabernacle and the priesthood. You find a summary of, of, in essence, the whole book of Leviticus, but in particular, uh, chapter 16, what we considered earlier. But it is immensely important here to realize uh, what he says at the end of verse 5. He says he's describing in a detailed way the old covenant ceremonies, but he adds quickly of these things we cannot speak in detail. In other words, what he makes us realize is that he is only summarizing and it is not his interest in the book of Hebrews, if you can believe it, to go into all the details, to present the old covenant in any kind of detailed fashion. And so I would say, in line with what we have here, that the details are important, but only insofar as they go. We are not meant to pour over every precise detail and look for significance in each, as we find them, for instance, uh, outlined for us in the book of Leviticus. In fact, one of the commentators that I was reading this week did that, some 30 pages devoted to these five verses and all the various elements you found in the tabernacle. Well, I confess you, I didn't read it. I felt he missed the point. It wasn't my interest to go into that Uh, today any more than I believe it's the right of the Hebrews to do that. He's very clear that his interest is not 
to go into great detail about all of this. And for us to fixate on the details, John Calvin says about these five verses, there are some things which are not fitted for the edification of faith. This would certainly be one of them. Painstaking attention to all these details. Or painstaking attention, you find Calvin in other places, I would agree with him here as well, to the various genealogies you have in the Old Testament. Don't get lost in the details. Find the greater point of significance. Indeed, that's what we have here in the book of Hebrews, as we'll find in verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. And we'll see that in a moment. At the same time, as the writer of the Hebrews acknowledges, there is some amount of detail which is necessary in order for us to understand what we had in the Old Covenant and its ceremonies. We see in verse 1 that the first covenant, that is the Old Covenant, again, that which God administered through Moses as its mediator, had had regulations of divine worship in the earthly tabernacle, that is, regulations that dealt with worship that occurred there in the tabernacle. And then in verses 2 through 7, which I won't read again, but uh, in, in those verses, he explains to us how that occurred in summary form. Especially with reference to the Day of Atonement, which we read about in chapter 16 of the book of Leviticus. But here's the really important thing for us to notice. The one detail that matters most in which we discover what the Holy Spirit was signifying in all of these details taken together and considered together. And that is the fact that in the tabernacle, you had a basic division. You had an outer court and an inner court. The inner court was called the Holy of Holies or the inner sanctum. Uh, or I, 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 it wasn't called this, but at, at times I'm referring it to it even as the sanctuary. The sanctuary of the Lord. What we discover about each court in the detailed description is that each court was adorned with certain things. But the really important things were only found in the inner court, such as the mercy seat or the ark. But again, here is the important point. That there was a division and that the division was marked off by a veil that separated these two courts. And the high priest, we discover, was only able to enter into the veil that is into the Holy of Holies once a year. That is only one man among the priestly class, only once a year, and only under certain conditions or provisions, which is spelled out uh, in two verses here and in a much more detailed way in Leviticus chapter 16. And only under those conditions, uh, they having been met, was he able to enter in very briefly to offer sacrifices. Verses 6 and 7, uh, when these things have been so prepared... The priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing divine worship. There you see it as a continual act. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So you see the inner court was extremely limited in its access. And it was there once more that the Day of Atonement was observed and where offerings of blood were made for the sins of the people. Uh, so also for the priest and his family. That's all I have to say about that. Verses 1 through 7. In the second place, we need to discover the significance of it. Verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. What is he signifying to us? And what was he signifying to the priests? I think we sometimes forget that they too, by faith, were able to perceive what God was doing 
It isn't as though we only with the old, with, with the old covenant expounded in the New Testament are able to understand its significance. No, even the spiritual person of the old covenant like David or Abraham was able to understand what the Holy Spirit was signifying. Well, what was he signifying? One of the most obvious points is that we find in the type that is the tabernacle and the Old Testament priesthood a pattern of the reality. This is something that was already made clear to us in chapter 8. Speaking of the earthly tabernacle, he says that they serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. They were patterned after the heavenly reality and the heavenly sanctuary. And because this is so, we should look in the pattern or the type for certain truths that the reality would later exhibit. There are certain things, in other words, that God is indicating to us in the typology of the Old Covenant that he will later uh, exhibit perfectly in the New Covenant. And so the purpose of the type or the pattern is to make us aware of those truths in advance, those truths and necessities, so that when the reality comes, we should have no difficulty in accepting it. For example, uh, such truths that we are made aware of by the Old Covenant are, are uh, the need for atonement. And that atonement required the shedding of blood, chapter 9, verse 22. And also that the high priest should enter into the inner sanctum of holy of, and, or, or, or the Holy of Holies. These are things that we discover as necessities by way of the sign. In all of this, God is indicating the covenantal structure of grace. That is, not only what the conditions are, but how he intends to meet those conditions so that we might enjoy him as sinners, as our blessedness and reward. And so that we as sinners might be able to draw near and to regain access, the access which Adam lost by his sin. The structures of grace, the covenantal structures of grace, and though grace is administered differently in each dispensation, old and new, those fundamental structures remain intact, which is because the pattern is pattern after the reality, and so obviously the reality would, re- would resemble the pattern and exhibit the same truths and reality, uh, realities in the plural. But far more significant in terms of what is being said here is that the earthly tabernacle actually stood in the way of heavenly access. It was a pattern and a type of the heavenly reality. It gave us a glimpse of what God would later do. It was a means by which the saint of the Old Testament had some foretaste of the heavenly reality. But in truth, what the Holy Spirit was indicating to them and to us is that so long as the tabernacle was there, access to heaven was in large part closed off. A free and a full access could never occur, which is clear by what he says in verses 8 through 10. Let me read those again. The Holy Spirit is signifying this by this basic division, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol of, for the present time. Charles Hodge, by these ceremony, ceremonial rites, the Spirit shadowed forth or exhibited a fact that access to God was not yet fully opened. Calvin puts it even stronger. 
He says, while the tabernacle under the law was standing, the heavenly sanctuary was closed up. Again, what we are meant to see, what the Holy Spirit is signifying to us and to them, is that the tabernacle actually stood in the way. And that a full and a free access to God in heaven could never be granted or achieved until that tabernacle was set aside. But this leads me to the third main point of the sermon, which is the way you notice he mentions the conscience here at the end of verse nine. He says the outer tabernacle, while it's still standing, the way into the outer, holy, the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. The conscience. We've considered the covenant in detail. I now want to look at the conscience again as a third heading. In speaking of the obstruction the tabernacle represented to the true Holy of Holies, which is again to say heaven itself. He reminds us that the sacrifices which were offered there on the Day of Atonement in the Holy of Holies were not able to perfect the conscience of the worshiper. What is he talking about? Well, he is talking about the priest himself who offered there. He made offerings for himself, for his family and for the sins of the people. But what that priest discovered and what I want to explore with you is that those sacrifices were not. He as a worshiper came to see able to cleanse his conscience. They were not able to give him a sense that he was at peace and that he was at rest in the presence of God. And so when he speaks of the worshipers whose consciences remain defiled by these sacrifices and were not made clean, he is speaking of the priests. But I think here we're able to look more broadly at the conscience, the idea of the conscience. You see, it comes in again in verse 14, speaking of the other side of the contrast. The old things were not, the new things are able. How much more will the blood of Christ, verse 14, who through the eternal spirit offered up himself without blemish to God, cleanse your consciences from dead works to serve the living God. By the way, let me just say the new covenant believer is considered in Peter and uh, even in terms of the Reformation as a class of priests. We all together, the priesthood of of all believers are able to uh, find access to God. But more than that, our consciences are cleansed. That is the point for us to explore. We have discovered something that the Old Testament priest never could under the old covenant. We are able to deal with God on the basis of a clean conscience. Again, let us explore that idea, uh, both in this and the next sermon. And uh, once again, let me just say. No surprise, I was richly edified uh, and, and, and not surprised to find Hugh Martin dealing with this subject in his book on the atonement. We have to begin with definitions. What do we mean by the conscience? What is the office of the conscience? What does God intend for it to do for the believer? Well, the conscience, as Hugh Martin points out, testifies that God is a lawgiver, a ruler, a judge. Which I think is a very good way of putting it. The conscience is not there to usurp the place of God. It is not there to give the law. Since that is God's proper office. Rather it is there to make me aware of the law. And of God's place as the lawgiver. And so the office of the conscience is to make me 
conscious of the office of God as the lawgiver and of the judge. It is there, in other words, to offer testimony on behalf of God. To tell the sinner, you have sinned, and by your sin you have transgressed God's holy law. And so it is the conscience that makes us aware of sin, and the guilt of sin, and that thereby we are made unclean. And if unclean, as I'll state in a moment, then unfit to dwell with God, let alone draw near. The conscience, therefore, does something more in making us aware of sin and its guilt. It renders the verdict in advance, that is to say, before the last day, guilty upon every transgression. It is my conscience which gives me a sense of condemnation, that I, as a sinner, am resting under the condemnation of God and fills me with a sense of dread at the prospect of that judgment. In that sense, there is nothing worse In all the world than to have a bad and a guilty conscience. And yet uh, this is how the unbeliever lives all the time. Though he does all he can to push down and suppress this sense that something is terribly wrong. It is the conscience further. As it tells us that we are unclean, guilty sinners. That declares to my soul that I am unfit to worship God. I am unfit to commune with him because my sin is sinful beyond measure. I am just like Adam, cast out of the garden, unfit to enter in again. It is our consciences equally, which testifies to us of the need for a remedy. If ever our relationship to God is to be restored, I, a sinner, need reconciliation. But if ever I am to be reconciled, God must provide the remedy. It's your conscience that says that in agreement with God in the covenant of grace. But in this, listen, the conscience is not so easily satisfied. It knows that not any remedy will do. False remedies, beloved, will never satisfy a guilty conscience or enable our conscience to testify that we are free to worship God. And so it is my conscience which tells me That I am a sinner. It is my conscience that tells me. Again in agreement with God. That I am guilty before God. It is my conscience which condemns me. It is my conscience which tells me. That something is terribly wrong. And that something is me. And it is my conscience more than anything else. Which bars me from entering into the presence of God. In worship. It is my conscience that is. Which gives me not a sense of freedom but of awful condemning slavery to sin. And so looking at what is said here in verse 9, let me read it again. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worship perfect in conscience. What he is describing is the guilty conscience. He is describing our inward consciousness of sin and of guilt and of this uneasy sense that by uh, the Sacrifice is offered there. There is no real remedy for sin. There is no real atonement. There is no real remission. Remember what I said. A false remedy will not do. It will not satisfy the conscience. The conscience knows better. And so under that administration, the sense of these things remained. And so what we realize 
as believers is what the Old Testament priest realized as well. It's what Martin Luther realized in the Reformation. And that is, I must deal as a sinner not only with a holy God, but with a conscience. It isn't just God who condemns me, but my conscience in agreement with the justice of God that condemns me. And if ever I would heed the exhortations of the book of Hebrews to draw near to God full of faith, I must deal with my conscience. I must have a clean conscience or I will forever stand afar. We are thus left with the question, seeing the dilemma like this, even for the priests of the Old Testament and even the high priest himself, what would succeed in satisfying my conscience? What would succeed in giving the sinner a sense that his sin is truly pardoned and that he is now at last at peace with God? And that he now has freedom of access before the throne of grace daily, not once a year, but always, forevermore. What would ever offer such things if not the old covenant and its sacrifices? If by that covenant we are made aware of the need for atonement, but we are unable to find it there, what then? How will I deal with my guilty conscience? What then will satisfy my case? What will give me a sense inwardly that my sin is actually pardoned? Is it enough, as some declare, that God simply let off the sinner? That he simply declare your sin is pardoned without affecting that pardon by means of the covenant as a covenantal transaction? Or looking in terms of the covenantal transactions of the old covenant, will the sacrifices of the old covenant do? Well, think of yourself again in terms of your conscience and recognize that your conscience will never be satisfied in such things. Your conscience plainly testifies that none of these things will do. Something more is needed. Again, the old covenant tells me what is needed. I discover by the old covenant the principle of atonement and of pardon as a covenantal transaction. In other words, as a condition which God meets on my behalf as an act of grace. Not something that I do, but something that he does for me. This thought is deeply satisfying and plain to my conscience. That if ever I am to be let off for my sins and let back into the presence of God, it must come by way of atonement. And so the old covenant and its sacrifices make me aware of the solution. It even takes me by the hand and leads me to that solution. About these things, my conscience is in full agreement. I know that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. That is a truth which satisfies my conscience. My conscience tells me it is right and true. Equally does it tell me that where there is a real atonement, there is real remission that stands forever. But such things could not be found in the old covenant, nor were they ever meant to be found there. Nothing makes this so clear to me as my own conscience. I find in those ceremonies nothing that satisfies me, nothing that gives me a sense of peace and rest before a holy God. Nothing there would ever give me a true sense that my sins were pardoned. Not only that, but it is clear that in our desire for this, as with the priests of old, a clear conscience, a sense of acquittal granted by God. This desire arises from a desire to worship God, to be restored to him so that I might worship him. But how can we do so so long as the stain of sin remains upon us? 
about which our consciences testify constantly. Again, listen to how he puts it. It cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. He's unable to worship God. His conscience holds him back. The conscience of man, no more than the law he has violated and the God he has offended, will not allow him to do so. Sin will not allow him into the sanctuary, not without being struck down by the flaming swords of the cherubim. Of this, he is absolutely certain, because his conscience tells him it is so. But it is to such a one, one, that is, who is deeply aware of his dilemma, one who is conscious of his sin and wants to get rid of that awful sense, like Christian at the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress, How can I get this awful burden off my back so that I might begin to progress down the heavenly path? It is to such a one that the words are offered in verses 11 through 15. Let me just read them now by way of preview in what we'll consider next time. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered up himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We can only imagine that to such a one, one who, as I say, was painfully aware of his dilemma under the law, such words are offered and received with tremendous delight and satisfaction, for he is aware of the need. His conscious conscience makes him so, the need of atonement. So, too, is he aware of the provisions which alone can meet that need, his conscience in agreement. But until Christ appears... He found nothing which could ever satisfy his guilty conscience. Nothing which could ever give him a sense that God and he were truly reconciled by way of atonement. Oh, but now that Christ has appeared, the author to the Hebrews says, and is presented to him like this, he finds in Christ what he sought all along. Not only access to God, but a clean conscience. Again, verse 14. How much more? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So he discovers in Christ's death a covenantal transaction which really does atone for sin. The former objections which stood against the weakness of the Old Testament priests made by the conscience, this uneasy sense that what they offered could never atone for sin, do not stand in the presence of Christ's priesthood and priestly sacrifice on Calvary's hill. There is nothing in Christ considered in his eternal deity as the Son of God, nor indeed in his priestly status as our great high priest, which includes his full humanity, to which our consciences are able to say, that will not do. The guilt of sin remains. I am not satisfied. No, man considered as one who is ruled by conscience and whose conscience determines his ability to worship God, either as testifying inwardly that he is in the right or in the wrong, is not able to find in Christ and his priesthood any reason to hold back, to stand at a distance, to think that I, a sinner, am unable or unfit to draw near. Just the opposite 
It is our conscience above all that is appeased and acquitted by his blood. It stands in full agreement with the law and the justice of God seen as a judge. When God lets off the sinner by Christ's once for all sacrifice of himself and declares that he who is in Christ is forever acquitted, always justified, never condemned, eminently acceptable to enter into the presence of God always. The conscience is there not to testify to the contrary, but to offer its full agreement. As sin is that which makes the conscience bad, so Christ's blood is that which makes the conscience good. And this is why it becomes the duty of the Christian to always consider the priestly work of Jesus Christ on his behalf. Because again, as I say, we not only have to deal with a God who is holy and who is just, but we have to deal with our own consciences, don't we? Daily, always, if ever we hope to deal with God. And there is nothing, beloved, nothing in the whole world, not even in the whole Bible, that can satisfy a bad conscience but his blood and his priestly sacrifice on the cross. And yet I would be quick to add at the same time that many of us, if not all of us, know what it is like to go on in our faith and in our pilgrimage to still find in one way or another that our consciences are bad and that we still have a conscious uh, inward sense of the guilt of sin, even as believers. This is something which the Apostle John speaks of, the bad conscience. 1 John chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. The way sometimes our heart condemns us. Don't we know what that is like? He contrasts it to the heart, by the way, which is confident and which prays and is confident that God will grant everything that we ask. But before that, he indicates the fact that at times we have an uneasy conscience. Our heart condemns us. We find it's difficult to pray, even as believers. Do you have any idea what I'm describing, beloved? Do you have any idea how to deal with such a state of soul. Again, I say there is no way to deal with this except by dealing with the blood of Jesus, except by coming to terms with the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Ask yourself when your conscience condemns you, what will ever satisfy it? What will ever give me a sense that I am in the right and that I'm at peace with God and that he will hear and answer my every prayer? Will your good works or your sacrifices Will will your own sense of guilt and contrition, will your own constant pursuit of being better and doing better do? You already know that none of these things will do because your conscience tells you so. We have to realize that nothing will ever satisfy our own sense of the enormity of sin and guilt seen against the reality of God's great justice as the divine lawgiver and judge, but a sacrifice that really atones for sin. Apart from such a sacrifice, there can be no atonement and remission of sin. And not only that, but neither can there be any inward sense of peace that my case is met and my sin is remitted and I am at peace with God. But supposing my case is met, that sin is actually atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ and I am aware of it as a believer then all that is left for me to do in order to pacify my uneasy conscience is to constantly set that case before my soul, the case which satisfies. Christ has died. God is reconciled. To this, my conscience will have no reply, no reason to reject him or condemn the sinner anymore. 
So the answer, beloved, for a bad conscience, even as believers, is just that we set him before the conscience constantly in his priestly work, his sacrifice for sin, his once for all offering, his constant work of intercession at the throne of grace, as well as the father's pleasure and acceptance of his work as his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. And the more we make these things the focus of our study as believers and the meditations of our hearts, the more we will rest content in him and his sacrifice for sin. And the more we will find that inwardly we have a sense of peace because we know that our case is met and that nothing can ever change that. Not so long as we are in him and so long as he is there standing in heaven for us. This is the great argument which we find at the end of the book, uh, uh, not the book, but the, the end of uh, Paul's argument in Romans chapter 8. Speaking of the blessing of justification of which we ought to be assured. What makes us assured? Well, listen to what he says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns Christ Jesus as he who died? Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Do you notice, by the way, how similar the argument is there to the whole of the book of Hebrews? Christ has died. Christ is raised. Christ stands in the presence of God forevermore to intercede. And the justice of God is satisfied. Who then will stand to accuse? Who will condemn? You see, in a sense, what he's saying and I find the same argument in Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression, a series of sermons he gave, is that we have to make the argument with ourselves. We have to take the gospel and preach it to ourselves in times when we are doubting and downcast when we're dealing with a guilty conscience. We have to tell ourselves that Christ has died. And if that is enough for God, if that meets the demands at the bar of his justice, then it ought to satisfy us as well. There is no longer anyone to condemn. No, not now that Christ has died. Not even the guilty conscience of the downcast believer is able to condemn. Christ has died. God has justified. We are reconciled. Our case is met. Our consciences, beloved, ought to be satisfied. And if they are not, then it is only evidence that we are still seeking to deal with God on the basis of something other than the blood of Jesus. That there is still need for us inwardly to deal with God, that is, on the basis of that blood shed for us at Calvary's Hill as a covenantal transaction of grace by which our case is met, by which our sin is pardoned, and by which our consciences are cleansed. More on this in the sermons to come as we continue to unfold and expand the priestly work of Christ on the cross. Let us now come to the table. As I say, the sermon is always longer the second time. Until we get back to one service, we're going to just keep rolling past the hour. I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) Thankfully, I didn't have any sense that I was losing you. Thank God for that. Matthew chapter uh, 26, the words of institution. 
which we can very briefly consider. Again, we don't have to be as full and expansive in in the words of uh, invitation and of barring, since now we get to do this every week. But the, the, the point of significance should be obvious here once again. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Uh, again, all, all that we need to see here is the way his blood ratifies the covenant, and the new covenant is the means by which uh, forgiveness is secured. And guaranteed. He's the surety of a better covenant. How does he guarantee it? Well, not only does the father vow or swear you're a priest forever. And so the father makes him so. He makes him an eternal priest on our behalf. But Christ, by shedding his blood, forever deals with our sin. And the whole purpose of the sacrament here is just to remind us of that fact. In terms of the sermon, in fact, not so much to pardon our sin. If we say that, then I think we've missed an important point here. Uh, that Christ has once for all put away our sin, but to cleanse our conscience once again. In many ways, the thing we need most is just to know that it is really so, and that I am able to deal with a guilty conscience. And here again, I am reminded that I deal with God not on the basis of my own works, nor on the basis of my sin, but solely on the basis of his blood. And that blood is enough to atone for my sin forevermore. And so here again, I am reminded and refreshed with the gift of forgiveness in dealing with a guilty conscience. And so I say to you, if that is what you're seeking, if you are seeking to be restored to God and reconciled to him on that basis, then the table is for you. And if not, then it isn't, plain and simple. This is a mark of demarcation. Who is it, those, who, is it who are those who seek to pass uh, under the blood of, of Calvary in seeking access and entrance into heaven? It really is just as simple as that. With those words, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we we praise you for the gift of uh, the Lord's Supper. We praise you for the gift of preaching as well. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you are set forth in these outward, ordinary means and that inwardly you are working something far, far greater, even the weight of eternity. And so we look forward with anticipation to the greatness of that reality and ask you that you would keep increasing our inward sense of these tremendous blessings that will one day be ours in full measure. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples as I, ministering in his name, give this bread to you.
our Lord Jesus said, take eat, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup, and having given thanks, as has been done in his name, he gave it to his disciples, as I ministering in his name, give this cup to you. Our Lord Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Now, as we close out our worship, uh, let us stand together and sing hymn 439.
as a reminder for this and one more week we'll be having the communicants class in about five minutes Uh, so I'd encourage you to uh, make your way outside receive now the Lord's blessing the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all Amen. Amen